Hello, and welcome to Full Metal Calvinist, a podcast exploring Christian theology through John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, as well as its continued relevance for today. I'm Mark. I'm Michael. And thanks for joining us for episode 2. Alright, Michael, how are you this uh, fine Tuesday Tuesday evening? Uh, I'm good. I'm excited to talk about our chapter today. Uh, and it's on what it is to know God. So I think it's quite an interesting chapter. And I'm, I, I'm look, I look forward to the discussion that we're going to have later. Yeah. Right. So I think if you have not known by now, this podcast is just the two of us uh, geeking out over a dead man. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Michael, I think uh, it would be appropriate at this juncture to give us the big ideas of uh, what, what this chapter is about so that it can provide some kind of uh, roadmap as to what our conversation tonight. Okay, um, so this chapter, okay, uh, before I go into what this chapter is about, maybe a slight recap of what we discussed the previous time. So uh, in episode one, uh, in chapter 1.1 of Institutes, Kelvin looked at how the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves is very intricately connected to one another. But he then moves on to treat the knowledge of God first. And right now, we go on to really expand on what it is to really know God. Right? So in this chapter, uh, chapter 1.2 of the Institutes, um, we talk about what it means to know God as creator, what good this knowledge is, so what is the users of this knowledge, and finally, what this knowledge might look like in the pious mind. Right, so we uh, first go into what it is to know God. So yeah. Right, so um, I think Kelvin is uh, is is quite he he's not polemical uh, in this chapter, is he? I mean, he's uh, writing trying to disprove uh, a particular way of thinking about God. Uh, mm. I think he he actually cites Epicurus. Okay. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, you're the philosophy major, but. Epicurus uh-huh. was the guy who um, had, had quite an influence on deistic uh, understandings of God, right? Um, which, which is actually something that we spoke about last week uh, as a problem that the Singapore church seems to face. Right. Um, but, but Kelvin, off, right off the bat, says you know, on, on page 7, uh, By the knowledge of God, I understand that by which we not only conceive that there is some God, but also apprehend what it is for our interests and conducive to his glory. What, in short, it is befitting to know concerning him. What do you think about this sentence that Calvin wrote? So I think it's very interesting. So uh, I direct our attention to two points. So firstly, he says um, it's not just about conceptualizing or even perceiving that there is some God. So it's not just the objective knowledge that God exists as a being. Right, so I think that's the the limit to which most of our knowledge of God today is restricted to, and you have all these like proofs of God's existence, so on and so forth. But that's just that particular aspect of the knowledge of God. Uh, we Calvin also seems to bring up another aspect. So, uh, what it is for our interest and conducive to His glory. So, what it is befitting for us to know concerning Him. So, in this case, we seem to Calvin. Uh, Calvin seems to create this other dimension of the knowledge of God, in which it is framed in terms of our proper relation to God in the order of creation. So, what I mean by this is that there is a certain a certain kind of worship that the great created being owes to the Creator, and that is inextricably linked to proper knowledge of God, right? So, um, 
in this context also, Kelvin seems to suggest that uh, he wants to restrict this knowledge of God in order for it to not be too uh, far-reaching or too complicated or too messy, but in order to proceed uh, with this um, investigation in a very systematic manner, he restricts this to a particular um, aspect of God as creator. So what do you make of this, Mark? Like, what, what, what does Kelvin really talk about in this case? Right. Um, I think we, we need not guess. Right? I think um, something that we we come to realize is that Kelvin doesn't leave his readers guessing because after all, uh, his intended audience uh, are people who don't actually know that much about God. And so again, on page 7, he says this, We must be persuaded not only that as he once formed the world, so he sustains it by his boundless power, governs it by his wisdom, preserves it by his goodness, in particular, rules the human race with justice and judgment, bears them in mercy, shields them by his protection, but also that not a particle of light or wisdom or justice or power or rectitude or genuine truth will anywhere be found which does not flow from him and of which he is not the cause. Uh, so that's a long sentence. Right. That's a long sentence. But clearly what he's trying to say is that the point being here that God is not just the creator of goodness. Uh, he is the origin of goodness. He is the source of goodness. Uh, and there can be no such thing as goodness apart from the person of God. Mm. A, a point that we, we made last week, didn't we, when we spoke about how um, the Christian church in Singapore, at least, seems to be so concerned with moral standards apart from the moral giver himself. Right. Right. And um, as, as Mikey, you mentioned earlier, Calvin refers to the knowledge of God in this chapter as the knowledge of God as creator. Mm -hmm. And already he says that actually even if before we know God as Savior, before we know God as Redeemer, um, through nature, right, we actually already know that he forms the world, he sustains it by boundless power, governs it by wisdom, preserves it by his goodness. And in his commentaries on Romans 1.19, he says, and I quote, by saying that God has made it manifest, that is to say, um, the knowledge of himself, he has made it manifest. He means that man was created to be a spectator of this formed world and that eyes were given him that he might, by looking on so beautiful a picture, be led up to the author himself. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure about you, but, but it's, yeah. It's also interesting that he talks about all these kinds of things um, with the caveat that we would have known all these things if Adam had not fallen. So it's referring right. not to man in his uh, post-fall, so after he's radically corrupted by the fall. But in page 7, Kelvin also says that I speak only of that primitive and simple knowledge to which the mere cause of nature would have conducted us had Adam stood upright. So, um, in, in a way, he's describing natural revelation, that God reveals certain things about himself through nature, through his creation, right, right. and it's mm. something that all human beings without fail will be able to ascertain from just the order of the world, the way in which everything is arranged, in the way in which the world itself is governed in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Um, and Kelvin, um, quite quintessentially Kelvin. I mean, it, it seems a little bit... Strange to say Kelvin is being quintessentially Kelvin, right? But, uh -huh. <laughs> but he, he does, um, he's not simply concerned, right? They just simply talk about knowledge in that very uh, sterile, clinical uh, mm -hmm. way. 
Because he says, then, what good is this knowledge? Right. Right? And he, he gives the answer again on page 7. I mean, I, I hope our, our listeners can see that his chapters are dense. They're really, really dense. This is right? just All two pages. Be- yeah, right. <laughs> so he, he, he says that the knowledge of God, this knowledge that we are supposed to have as creator, uh, its purpose is to lead us to piety. Mm-hmm. Uh, he defines piety as this, that union of reverence and love to God, which the knowledge of his benefits inspires. For properly speaking, we cannot say that God is known where there is no religion nor piety. Right, and you see over here that this is what you were referring to, right, Mark? So, Kelvin yeah. really contrasts the true knowledge of God, the, the one with piety, uh, with this Epicurean idea of God, which has cast off the care of the world and only delights himself in ease. So, in other words, it's referring in a quite an oblique, or not oblique way, uh, right. to, the, to the idea that will become that will emerge in full force in the enlightenment of this, uh, the divine architect, the divine watchmaker, the god of Voltaire, Rousseau, the deist, who is only uh, important insofar as he creates the world, and then he just like takes a step back and, and lets the world sort of go on by natural laws. And that's what right. people like Kant and Spinoza will later go on to talk about in right. natural religion. But Calvin yeah. would say to all of these thinkers and philosophers, that this kind of God is of no use to us. Right, so he says in page 8, what avails us, in short, to know a God with whom we have nothing to do? And rather, really, for Kelvin, the true knowledge of God as creator really functions to serve a pedagogical role, to teach us reverence and fear, and to also ask every, for us to also ask every good thing from him, and to give thanks to him for it. And I think Kelvin doesn't just talk about all these things in the abstract, but he really defines it in a rather concrete way. Uh, Mark, would you like to sort of elaborate a bit more on how uh, the kind of pious knowledge and how it would look like for Kelvin in a sense? Right. Uh, I think in our own discussion, we've uh, been able to provide our own categories to Mm -hmm. what this pious knowledge looks like, right? Uh, And I think the two of us came to uh, an agreement that pious knowledge that that Kelvin refers to in chapter 2 uh, can be defined and understood both positively and negatively. Yeah. Right? On one level, the man with pious knowledge stays away from any and all attempts to construct and falsify representation of God. So this is what we call the negative uh, mm-hmm. aspect of pious knowledge. Right? He quotes, uh, he, he says in, in page, on page 8, uh, For first of all, the pious mind does not devise for itself any kind of God, but looks alone to the one true God, nor does it feign for him any character it pleases. So he's saying here that any kind of knowledge of God, if it's supposed to be truly pious, is always going to look only to God Mm. and it's not going to just make God in uh, however the mind pleases. But on the other level, the positive aspect, the man with pious knowledge takes God as he is pleased to reveal himself and is careful to subordinate itself to him. Pious knowledge, he says, is contented to give to have him in the character in which he manifests himself, always guarding with the utmost diligence against transgressing his will and wandering with daring presumption from the right path. Mm-hmm. So he gives that dual kind of... Uh, aspects to to pious knowledge and on one hand it says don't do this right Mm -hmm. don't make for yourself an image of god and on the other do this right look to how the true god has revealed himself and submit yourself to him yep and i think he goes on later on 
in that chapter um, to really talk about it in a more specific way. So the man with pious knowledge does go on to perceive and acknowledge the governance of God in all things, uh, to acknowledge God as the fount of every blessing as the song goes, um, to acknowledge the, the goodness and the merciful nature of God, and also to acknowledge God in all his different roles throughout, um, as father, as lord, and as judge. And we also see that this is not purely an intellectual affair, right? And, and as with Calvin's, uh, as we can see from his definition of piety or his definition of the knowledge of God, it's not just purely intellectual. It translates itself visibly in the believer's life. So when mm. the believer comes to see that God is all these things, right? To see God in the world, to see God as the fountain of blessing, to see God in his loving and merciful nature, he is able to practically believe that God is able to supply a remedy for his every need and he always, always, always considers the judgment of God in all of his actions, right? So God is embraced not right. in uh, as a part, right, but in, a, in his whole as a, both an avenger of wickedness and as the rewarder of the righteous. And the man with pious knowledge therefore apprehends rightly that it equally pertains to his glory to store up punishment for the wicked and eternal life for the other. Right, right. Yeah. Um, can, can I just say that after you mentioned the fount of every blessing, uh, I couldn't get the song out of my head. So, I will be singing that uh, later tonight in the shower. So, I think if my family uh, starts to complain about my singing, I'll, I'll blame you lah. Uh, but I think in summary, uh, pious knowledge, I think to Kelvin, is, is manifested in several ways. Uh, not several ways, several examples, right? Um, it looks, it is careful not to transgress his will. It perceives how he governs all things and therefore confides in his faithfulness as guardian and protector. It perceives him to be the source of every blessing and therefore rests in his protection and trusts in his help. It perceives him to be good and merciful and therefore reclines on him with confidence. And lastly, like you said, acknowledges him as father, lord, and judge. And flowing from that, therefore, respects his authority, reveres his majesty always. And all this is summed up by Kelvin's definition of true religion, which I think to um, modern Singapore evangelicals, uh, it's a little bit jarring to use this term. Uh, gasp. Religion. Right? <laughs> Kelvin sums all of this up in the definition of true religion, Confidence in God coupled with serious fear, which includes willing reverence and legitimate worship as prescribed by the law. What do you make of that? I think it's also interesting because uh, Calvin, Calvin also says in page 8 that a pious individual obeys God not purely out from the fear of punishment, but out of love and reverence. So right. there seems to be two kinds of fear that Calvin is speaking about here, right? So there is a fear of punishment, right. which the pious individual doesn't really suffer from, right? Or, or not right. purely suffers from. But there is a, so a, a still a kind of fear um, of God that includes willing reverence and legitimate worship under the law. So there is both a fear that, there is both a conception of the, pious believer as not being under the law insofar as the pious believer needs to fulfill certain kinds of attributes of the, uh, aspects of the law in order to be right before mm. God but at the same time the, the pious 
believer recognizes the the majesty of God and worships him legitimately as stipulated under the law. So the law becomes a certain kind of re- uh, 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 like a metric or a uh, right. a, a mode through which mm. we can ascertain that this is pious worship. Right. Right, and and ultimately for Kelvin, he ends with this very uh, interesting, uh, very 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 poignant sentence. Uh, he says that false piety flows from false knowledge of God. Mm. He ends with this quote in page eight: "All men promiscuously do homage to God, but few, but very few truly reverence Him. On all hands, there is an abundance of ostentatious ceremonies. Wow, that that word, but uh, sincerity of heart is rare." So, so really, we, we, and I think this makes me wonder, right? What, what kind of ostentatious ceremonies do we even have in right. Singapore now, yeah. right? So, continuing on the conversation we had in the previous episode, what kind of uh, uh, trends in Singapore, in the Singapore church would uh, you, Mark, um, argue that it would, would fit under this category of an ostentatious ceremony, uh, being consistent or inconsistent with what Kelvin defines as true piety? Right, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, how do I say this without getting us in trouble? Uh, maybe this is episode 2, <laughs> right? But okay, I, I think one one thing that uh, did stand out to me is our principles of worship. Right? Um, just before uh, Mikey quoted uh, the quote about ostentatious ceremonies, um, I, I quoted Kelvin from page 8 saying that True religion is a fear that includes willing reverence and legitimate worship as prescribed by the law. So, already we have in the second chapter of the Institutes uh, what was later to be called, or rather the seed of what was later to be called the regulative principle of worship. right? Um, and what this principle really states is that we allow the scriptures to regulate the way we worship. Right, which means that everything that we do in worship is to be regulated by the word of God. Um, that everything that we do in worship needs to find a positive warrant, either explicitly or implicitly uh, in the word of God. And I find that actually that's something so inconsistent with majority of Singapore churches today. Right? I mean, if you were to just go and walk down the street to your um, neighborhood evangelical church, uh, by and large, chances are you're going to be coming across somebody or a church that has not even heard of this regulative principle of worship, right? And what do you see uh, when churches don't follow the regulative principle? Um, you see smoke machines. You see disco lights. Uh, you see catwalk stages from which your the pastors and the worship team um, stand, walk, and, and jump around on. You see, really, uh, a worship service that doesn't exactly look any different from a rock concert. And that's sad. That's sad because we know that there is a certain order, right? There's a certain um, sobriety that God does command uh, when we come together as a church to worship. And because people have just forgotten, I think this... Protestant doctrine of regulative principle um, that, that actually piety today in, in, in the Singapore church is either inconsistent with what Kelvin is saying at best or at worst, um, non-existent. 
Right, and and I think it's very interesting that Kelvin on page 8 uses the word all men promiscuously do homage to God. And I just right. can't help but think about uh, the the, way, the manner yeah. of worship that you described and how it's it's really promiscuous insofar as men want to claim a certain degree of uh, piety, a certain degree of, um, you know, that kind of sincerity of heart in worshipping God, but always, right. always on their own terms. And yeah. it's promiscuous insofar as it's, it's really in a way, adult is is adulterously seeking to worship God in a way that he does not right, even want right. to be worshipped, right? It's, it's, it's even bringing in the idea of what constitutes worship in the, from the world and sort of sneaking right. that into the church. And I think that that would be similar yeah. to what Calvin would be saying, right? There, there is all these yeah, like, yeah. ostentatious ceremonies out there, but, but if you are talking about sincerity of heart and not insofar as the world understands it, but insofar as God himself demands and, and expects to be worshipped, you, you hardly ever see people um, right, uh, fitting right. this category yeah. anymore. And I mean, yeah. um, that, that really does go to the heart of the Reformation, doesn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, Luther, um, Martin Luther was concerned with justification by faith alone. Uh, he was concerned with the authority mm-hmm. of Scripture alone. And and really, these were the two defining doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. But Calvin, Calvin appropriated all of that from Luther. Um, but I think why, one of the reasons why we, we love Calvin so much is that Calvin goes another step further that I think arguably Luther didn't take. And Calvin was saying that at the heart of Reformation must be the Reformation of worship. Right, because to Calvin, uh, mm-hmm. Calvin understood that worship flows from piety, and piety flows from theology. Right, and and once we get it wrong at the very root, uh, that is to say, theology, um, the fruit, right, our piety, our worship, we get completely, completely wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and you, you yeah. worship a god that doesn't exist yeah. that comes out yeah. of your own mind, right? Like, and I think it's worth considering, right? Asking ourselves this question right now: To what extent has Calvin's characterization of an Epicurean idea of God defined, maybe not just as a divine watchmaker in the mode of the Enlightenment, but even many different conceptions or even many different permutations of God today? It, it has entered into the local church in such a way that it's very, yeah. very different and very, very unlike the God right. from the Bible that yeah. we see, right? I mean, last. Last um last last uh episode we talked about uh, the, the the god who is known as yeah. the daddy god right and 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 then there's the kind of like sentimental clawing nature of 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 god of the definition of god right now where yeah. he's almost defined like a Santa Claus yeah. where he yeah. gives you literally everything you want he doesn't chide you mm. he doesn't correct you he like he like um comforts you in everything in 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 a way he doesn't um where where the true worship is supposed to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted it, it just comforts yeah, the comfortable yeah. like the full stop right it, yeah. it doesn't really yeah. demand anything from well, us I mean, yeah it, it's it's quite interesting that you mentioned that because i i, I was just uh, i stumbled upon a quote um i think i think it's by owen strachan uh he's, he's an american uh, preacher okay. theologian and he said that I think something to the effect of if you're, you are not being attacked for your convictions, right? something is wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and it's, yep. it's, it's uh, I thought, quite providential that you brought up the idea of comfortable Christianity and all that kind of thing because that, that is really, I think, a word that we could use to describe Singaporean Christianity. I mean, we're comfortable. Right? We are so, so mm-hmm. comfortable because we're not persecuted. Uh, we're, we're not mocked. Uh, we're, we're not 
thrown out and laughed out of our classrooms and our offices for standing up for truth, right? For the gospel. And yes. if you are not, if all of these things are, are not happening, I mean, of course, I'm not trying to advocate for us seeking out persecution, right? Uh, to try and show a kind of piety, right? Uh-huh. Um, I think Kel- Kelvin is not, right. not saying that, uh, neither do we want to say that, right? Kelvin says that, the tr- that if you really want true piety, get your theology right, right? Um, but here's the thing. Mm-hmm. It seems as though the Christian history has shown that if you get your theology right, your piety gets right, and persecution follows close on heels, right? Yeah. Right, um, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, so we're comfortable, we are anti-intellectual, right? We're not encouraging thinking, uh, and mm-hmm. it's quite sad, yeah. It seems to be interested yeah. in, like, the bare right. bones, right? The very, right. like, minimum of right, what is right. absolutely yeah. required to yes. just fulfill this, yes, like, yes. idea of being a Christian. And there's this, almost this, right. this abuse of grace, right. right? There's this idea of cheap grace where literally yeah. God will forgive you for anything. Exactly. So why even yeah. bother with holiness? Why even bother with um, taking on the cross, dying to yourself, living on to holiness? It, it doesn't really matter anymore because... I mean, like, nobody else cares and we can all just go about living our worldly lives and just calling, going to church on Sundays and just living Monday to Saturday is no different from the world, yeah. Right, and it seems as though people uh, go to church on Sundays just simply to chase an emotional high, right? Um, do, do, you, do you think that way? Yeah, I think so, especially when churches, many church services become literally no different from rock concerts. I mean, yeah. it's the same yeah. motivation it's, it's, that, that, that draws them there, right? It's not so much worshipping yeah. God, but it's the... Yeah, I mean, uh, preachers are preaching messages that sound no different from self-help uh, speeches, right? You see, here's the thing. If we know God rightly, if we get the gospel right, and if we, like Kelvin, sort out our theology, none of these things will happen. Right? I mean, okay, perhaps none of these things happening might be a little bit far-fetched, right? But but do you, I think it is an accurate and a fair assessment to say that a lot of the problems that ails the Singapore, the modern Singapore church today is just simply that we've lost all sight uh, of who God is, what He demands of us, and who we are in in light of Him, right? And mere Christianity, right? That's, that's the name of C.S. Lewis's book, and everyone likes to talk about it. Oh, you know, I yep. just need mere Christianity, but it's quite ironic because Lewis then spends the rest of his life writing about theology. So, so quite clearly, um, mm-hmm. the the idea that Lewis had of I think <laughs> mere Christianity. Uh, I think it's quite different uh, from the way modern Singapore evangelicals understand it today. But there's, there's another point that right. I thought I wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, and it's the point of natural revelation. Right? We, we did talk about that, um, how mm-hmm. God does okay. reveal and communicate certain truths about himself in nature. What do you think um, is the practical implication uh, of natural revelation? 
Right, so um, just to refresh for our viewers, natural revelation is um, defined, again, as the idea that God reveals certain things about himself through nature, right? So there is, uh, we, can, can, we can differentiate this category from special revelation, which is the revelation from scripture, from the apostles, so on and so forth. So um, I think it's very interesting because we oftentimes take a very desacralized view of nature or even of the world, right? We, we, I think it's very interesting because people use words like providence or people use words like chance or fate and they, 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 they talk about like events happening as though, you know, um, there is such a thing as a higher power controlling it. Mm. But at the same time, when we talk deeper about God being the one who moves everything, then people are a bit, um, you know, they, they're taken aback, they, they kind of don't want to engage and then they start going into the, the part about, oh, how do you know God exists? So I think it's very interesting that even the world that we see right now, it isn't... Um, evaluated or perceived as the creation of a god when even the ancients themselves like right. even socrates plato they all at least knew that such a thing uh, that god existed mm. even though they didn't know which god right but but right now nature itself is so desacralized and yet people are still using language like fate and you see all these like um evolute um dev uh, descendant, uh, they, they descend into right. superstition and feng shui and all these things to, yeah. to attempt to make sense of the world but they don't really see that fundamentally the world cannot be by itself and as Leibniz would say why right. is there something rather than nothing like there, there, there is mm. there must be a first cause there must be something that first produced the world and we see that um, people don't think about these things even as they engage with the world uh. so I do think that in that sense um natural revelation uh the 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 what is known what can be known about god is so apparent to us and yet people in romans 1 really suppress right. the truth in all unrighteousness and that itself is really right. enough to condemn all right, of us right. for yeah. impiety uh, i think right? i think it's yeah. uh this idea of natural revelation uh i think does come up mm. uh even stronger uh when we consider singapore society doesn't uh doesn't it kelvin would would be the first to say that with natural revelation uh, comes what he would call the sensus divinitatis, right? The sense of the divine. Okay. And if we were to look at Singapore's society, I think uh, based on our demography and, and our sociology, uh, I think it, it would be fair to say that mm-hmm. pretty much most of uh, most Singaporeans are spiritual, right? In, in a sense that most, mm-hmm. most Singaporeans um, do claim adherence to a certain faith. Uh, and on the contrary, I think to, to arguments against God and, and Christianity, um, the widespread proliferation of religions all over Singapore, as well as the world, I think doesn't go towards um, invalidating the truth of Christianity. I think it does the exact opposite because it does tell us that in the heart and the soul uh, in the very makeup of every human, uh, being the image of God, right, as we spoke about last uh, episode, uh, is the sense that there is a God. And uh, all efforts, apart from looking at the Bible to derive theology, all efforts subsequently to construct a theology that is not biblical, that is not scriptural, uh, is simply an exercise in vanity. Because we're all looking at the wrong thing. So, and and I think when, when you do bring up the fact about how this knowledge then is enough to condemn all of us, um, 
that breaks my heart when you consider just how many Singaporeans out there are content in their false religiosity, in their false religions, um, with no idea of who the true God is and who we are in relation to Him. And I mean, but but don't we, we don't even need to go to those Singaporeans who don't know God, right? Like even in the modern Singapore church, we have a conception of God that's very, very different from yeah. Calvin, right? That, that people want to downplay some of the more unpalatable elements such as the idea of God as judge, an avenger of wickedness. I mean, this is anecdotal, but I have heard uh, people who are like, oh, we shouldn't talk too much about right. you know the holy wrath of God because we, mm, we don't mm. want to scare people away. We want to emphasize rather the loving nature of God. I mean, sure, they come from a good place, but that's dishonest fundamentally right. to who God is, right? Because people need to hear the truth about God. It's not up to us to really decide what aspect yeah. of God to say right. and what not to say. And I think really, um, it's it's really this desire again for a God that we can tame, a God we can worship, uh, that we can control, a God that we can worship as we see fit rather than as He sees fit. Right. And I think it's it's really quite scary, right? So so we have on the one hand, as you rightly pointed out, people who are worshipping all manner of false gods or, or, or gods that don't exist, vanities, right? But on the other hand, even in the church, we see something similar insofar as people are worshipping a god that doesn't, strictly speaking, exist. And they are ignoring the God who is actually existing. So I think mm. that is quite scary on multiple levels. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So in summary, uh, chapter two of Calvin's Institutes, uh, really at its heart, looks at the true knowledge of God, uh, what it means to know him, and what we are supposed to be doing with this knowledge. For Calvin, piety and religion flows from theology. And if we don't get our theology right, religion and piety will also be wrong. It's a matter of making sure that we get the roots healthy, we get the roots right before we turn our attention to consider the fruit. So I think this is as good a place as any to bring episode two to a close. We do hope that you have enjoyed this episode. And if you do, please do give us a like and a review as well as share it with your friends that they might also be blessed uh, by our discussion. Uh, if you would like to get in touch, we have still not gotten our social media up, but we do have a new email. Uh, so if you have any questions, uh, clarifications, as well as you just want to reach out to us uh, to give constructive criticism, as well as correct uh, correct us on anything that we have said wrong, please do reach us at fmcalvinists at gmail.com. That is fmcalvinists at gmail.com. So please do give this episode a share, a like, and we'll see you soon.